Pod Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley Mowers, and I'm thrilled you are joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Issue 2, Imperfect Hosts. I'm joined by two illustrious co-hosts, Sean Dotson. Hello, hypothetical listeners. (laughs) And And Ben Childers. Hello, real listeners. On each episode... We'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we let you know who created the issue. Next, the catch-up, to be sure you know where we are in the story. And then, the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue. Our next section is the deep dive, where we really get into everything that happens. In our penultimate section, the panel, we'll talk about our favorite panel from that week's issue. And finally, the character, so we can discuss the best non-Morpheus character. Ashley, over to you for the rundown. Thanks, Ben. So the team that we've got for this issue, story by Neil Gaiman, that's probably going to be, get get used to hearing that, that's probably going to be the standard. (laughs) Penciling by Sam Keith again. Inker is Mike Dringenberg. Colorist, Daniel Vazo. Letterer, Todd Klein. Cover art and interior illustrations by Dave McKean. Assistant editing by Art Young and the editor, Karen Berger. Sean, give us the catch up. Okay. So the anthropomorphized personification of dream and myth is captured by an Aleister Crowley type British magician named Roderick Burgess, who actually sought to capture death to gain power and immortality. Instead, Burgess winds up with a weak and vulnerable dream king, whom he imprisons in a magical circle for 72 years. Also, he steals all the magical items Dream had with him. Meanwhile, the world is thrown into chaos in this figure's absence. A sleepy sickness overtakes the entire globe, and we follow the journeys of several poor individuals whose ability to wake, sleep, or dream is taken from them, including Unity Kincaid, who will be important later on. Burgess grows old and dies, waiting for Dream to offer the power he seeks. His son and heir, Alex, continues the tradition and offers the same deal as his father. As Alex grows old, he eventually makes a mistake and breaks the magical circle. Dream uses this opportunity to escape the waking world, but not before taking his revenge on Alex Burgess. Alex is condemned to the nightmare of eternal waking, experiencing that horrible nightmare where you think you've woken up, only to find yourself still within a dream for the rest of his life and possibly beyond. Ben, let's do the breakdown. Excellent. So in this issue, what we see is that Morpheus arrives back in the dreaming and is reunited with multiple fan favorite characters, including Kane, Abel, and Lucian, who I'm sure we'll talk about all three of those later on in this episode and in many episodes in the future. We also get introduced to Dr. Destiny, Anyone called out with that kind of name is definitely going to play an impactful role. We're just not exactly sure what Dr. Destiny is going to be in terms of how the comics go. 
We then have Morpheus call upon the Hecate, also called the Furies, the Witches, or the Kindly Ones. They are known as One Who Is Three, and they control the fates and will be instrumental in the entirety of the story. At the end, from the Hecatate, he learns the basic whereabouts of his three items. Who has the ruby? Who has the helmet? And who has his sand pouch? And with that, he sets off to get his first item, the sand pouch. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yeah, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Let's jump into the deep dive. Ashley, let's start with you. All right. So shocking no one. I'm uh, pretty curious to discuss Cain and Abel. Uh, and their inclusion in this whole series. The information that the issue gives us primarily, just pulling from the text directly as everyone's reading it with us, Abel, he looks very scared. He's got a stutter. Clearly, Cain obviously is an aggressor in this relationship. He's trying to give him give Abel a gift. There's just a, a, a lot of anxiety wrapped up in their relationship from the start. You've got these really interesting hairstyles that wisp up so they kind of look like they're wearing horns but in their hair, which is really comical to me. But what particularly stood out to me just based on what the text gives us is that Abel describes himself as the victim of the story in Cain and Abel and that the story of Cain and Abel is referred to as the quote-unquote first story, which if that to him is the first story, then that means that there are a lot of stories that that weren't the first story, namely the Genesis creation myth. Uh, So I find that kind of fascinating. We also learn that between the two of them, between the brothers, they have two houses, Cain's being the house of mystery. Uh, He describes himself, he introduces himself to Dream as the purveyor of penny dreadfuls, shilling shockers, blood and thunders, and first-rate nightmares. And then Abel is the master of the house of secrets. And that these two houses are, quote-unquote, old way stations to the frontiers of nightmare. So I can't remember off the top of my head whether we ever are introduced to the new way stations to the frontier of nightmare, but these are the old way stations. But what I was most interested to learn actually for myself was that these houses of mystery, the house of mystery and the house of secrets and the appearance of Cain and Abel themselves are a reference to key figures in a mystery line of comics from DC. And Sean, I'm trusting that you have more information on those comics than I do. I've, I've got some rudimentary knowledge, but I've, I've not looked into them too closely. Could you fill me in? A bit more. Yeah. Um, so, big picture, and going back a little bit, in the mid 
1950s, horror comics are huge. You have EC Comics publishing these really brilliant and thoughtful and horrifying and beautiful comics. Um, They were amazing. I grew up on those and they're phenomenal. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they're still, they still hold up and there's reprints all the time that you can get, but it excited a little bit of hysteria. So people might be familiar with the story of Dr. Frederick Wortham, a psychologist and moral crusader who identified these books in particular, as, as well as the latent homoeroticism in Batman or something, as being the source of moral degeneracy. And so he wrote this famous book, Seduction of the Innocent. It caused outrage and it resulted in pressure for censorship all the way coming from Congress. So in to, to, to sort of address these concerns and circumvent more censorship, the major publishers agree, agreed to an oversight board called the Comics Code Authority. And the Comics Code Authority severely limited what kind of stories you could tell, you know, whether you could have supernatural elements, whether you could show blood, you know, sex, nudity, murder, all this stuff, um, ghosts. And there were all sorts of silly rules set up. Ghosts. And it, yeah. I, I love how we have all of these violent crimes. <laughs> and then ghosts. Yeah. It was, they were pretty thorough. And yeah. it sort of resulted in really hampering the development of the medium in the U.S. It produced a, a long period of a sort of, you know, what some people thought of as a kind of stagnation, as sort of stuck in this adolescence but by the 70s by the 70s things had loosened up a little bit uh, that you could now have supernatural elements you could now have things like murder as long as it was like as long as you saw like the murders getting um you know their comeuppance right <laughs> so the 70s produced this kind of new wave of <laughs> horror themed books and DC came out with several of them. And each of them had this sort of supernatural ghoulish host, right? And so you had Cain and Abel, who were each hosts of the series House of Mystery and House of Secrets. Uh, you had the Witching Hour, which was hosted by the three witches that we see, the Hecate. And then a very short run series called Tales of Ghost Castle, which I think only lasted like three issues, but that one was hosted by Lucian. Oh, cool. And so, you know, much like the last issue we read was Neil Gaiman's take on the classical British horror story, this issue was his ode to those 1970s DC horror comics that he would have grown up with. Did that fill it in for you, Ashley? It it did. That was really helpful because I remember the first time I ever read The Sandman encountering Cain and Abel. I was like, well, that's not the story at all. Why is Abel being damned to hell? Like, I remember being really perplexed by it and not understanding at all how they were fitting it in, especially after having read American Gods. I was like, I know Neil Gaiman knows 
<laughs> I know he knows the lore. I know he knows his Bible. This is not on. So once I got the the fill in from both you and then just do some minor Googling, realizing that this these were references to comic books he grew up with and loved and this reference to this horror genre, I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. This snaps it into context for me. The cover that's coming to mind from those comics is a picture of, it's when the House of Mystery was was shut down. They, they stopped producing it for a bit and it's Kane moving out of the house of mystery and Gregory's behind him and he's got his two suitcases. And I feel like you never see Kane look more low than when he's trying to move out of his own house. It just, I was like, wow, I actually feel bad for this guy. That has never been said before. But um, again, I love the fact that Neil Gaiman is celebrating what he loves about comics, whether people understand it or recognize it or not that he's just going to include what he loves and anyone else can come along on the ride with him if they want to and i think the thing that i liked about it is it doesn't feel like he's trying to be smarter than you it doesn't feel Mm -mm. like he's trying to gatekeep like no knowing those things is enjoyable and it and it adds to the to the overall reading of it but not knowing that and just being like can enable I know them from the Bible and one of them killed the other one. And there still seem to be one of them still seems to be killing the other one. And, (laughs) you know, they got some gargoyles and okay, sure. Like they're here. Like, why not? I mean, it's the dreaming, you know? And so it doesn't detract to not know about, you know, canonically in DC, why Cain and Abel are there. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is potentially a lesson that a lot of creators could take to heart when they think about how to inject like Easter eggs and things like that in and how, how are are you doing it in a way that all it does is lift up what people are experiencing, no matter how they're approaching it, whether they get it or they don't get it. They don't feel like, Oh, I'm left out because I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, right. Like they serve the purpose here and I, I get what they're doing here and I don't have any background knowledge and I'm still able to enjoy what they do. It's not like I'm kind of like, Oh, I'm lost or I, I don't quite get what they're trying to do with it. But if you do know more, then it's really exciting to be like, oh, I totally see what they're doing here. Yeah, I just I love any moments where we see uh, Neil Gaiman's unadulterated enthusiasm for his own medium and the fact that he can just sort of like throw himself into being a full blown nerd and everyone else can celebrate that because they're also nerds if they're reading this um, is just really beautiful in its own way. Um, But you mentioned you mentioned context of the story of Cain and Abel. And guess what I've got? Well, I got some context on the story of Cain and Abel. <laughs> Just to flesh it out. Because there are a lot of misconceptions, not based on these characters. These characters kind of stand alone. The reason I bring it up is because Gaiman also is a nerd for myth and legend. And he's actually taking, you know, these comic book characters that he's celebrating here from the House of Mysteries and the House of Secrets. And he does inject more biblical scholarship into them as he does with anything, anytime he references any folklore or myth or any scripture from any other religion. He, he adds more into it to flesh it out further. And you see this in further issues, but it's really fascinating in that regard because he's deepening these characters that, that were just kind of like crypt keeper hosts essentially. And I like the fact that he gives them more dimension, more depth. So for anybody who's unaware because I'm not going to assume that you just have a Bible on hand or that you read it frequently, but uh, you can find the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter four, verses one through 16. So it's a short story, 
I and believe it's so somewhere early. near the front, right? Yeah, yeah. Of the yeah. whole book. Yeah. You're, so you're right early. on it. You're so good. I know. Yeah. Um, and so so you kind of get the sense, oh, okay, Abel says this is the first story, which is interesting. But it is near the front, as Sean said. So if you even if you were grab like say you're at your mom's house, you're visiting for the weekend, I'm sure you could like snag whatever Bible off the shelf, you'd be able to find this, no problem. Just page through the first couple pages. 16 verses, very short. It's funny that this is referenced as the story of Cain and Abel, because really, this is the story of Cain. Abel is barely in the story at all. He doesn't speak. He really doesn't have a role of prominence at all. He is a victim of murder, but he doesn't have any sort of active role in the story at all. It's really a story about Cain's relationship with God. So when Cain is born, we get conception, we get birth, we get his naming, we get, I've, you know, his name means I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. Abel's name, the the Hebrew word is hevel, which is the same word used in Ecclesiastes, shout out to Solomon again, just a throwback, that it's the same word for, for nothing, just emptiness, wow. like nothing, meaninglessness. So Abel's name means nothing. So he doesn't matter. We don't get his birth story, his origin story. He's the second born. He doesn't matter as much. Breath, vapor, smoke. That's what his name means. And again, Abel doesn't speak once. So he's, it's kind of fitting to that name. And if you know anything about being the firstborn, you're the one that would receive the inheritance. You're the one that would be responsible for the, the family line. So Abel doesn't matter uh, to the concept of a legacy in any case. But despite that, you see him very humbly sacrifice his first fruits. He's a shepherd. So he's taking the best and the first from his flock and using that as a sacrifice and worship. Cain and people, again, misinterpret this quite a bit. Cain is a farmer and he basically just throws God a bone. He takes whatever he has and he's like, yeah, here's some fruit and vegetables take it or leave it. I don't really care. Whereas again, Abel is taking the best, the, the first of his flock, giving him first choice. So it's not the fact that Cain gave fruit and vegetables. That's what he would give, right. but it's, it's, it's how he decided. It's him, his, com- it. yeah, exactly. It's his, it's his comportment. Um, Got it. so it has to do with his, his, I mean, ultimately his emotional and spiritual posture towards God, not so much that God is a dick and didn't want to eat his vegetables, um, <laughs> which is frequently, you know, the interpretation that people come to me, they're like, why was God so mean to, to Cain? And it's like, well, really, if you took Cain and looked at his station in life, you could kind of liken him to, to like a trust fund kid that's just being really bratty and doesn't like want to. He just doesn't want to. He's like, I worked hard for sure. this. Here's some stuff. Take it or leave it. Worked hard was in quotes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly it. So when Cain then gets angry and kills Abel, that's kind of befitting his character. You assume he probably has a temper. He's not exactly the most positively dispositioned person in the family. Uh, that that's just again how the fable goes. How this creation, this myth continues is is that he's just kind of a crappy guy. And despite this, despite his constant flaws, despite him killing his own brother, uh, God spares him. 
And even then, as God spares him, Cain complains about being spared. He's like, I'm going to get killed. You're condemning me to a life of wandering. I'm going to get murdered immediately. And God's just like, no, my guy, you're not. Like, here, will this make you feel better? And he marks him, marking him, like setting him aside and saving him, not being like, I'm going to mark you and people are going to see this and you're going to have this ugly birthmark on your forehead and you're going to be like, it's a warning sign. It's, I am setting you aside and I'm, I'm claiming you still, you're just not going to be with your family anymore. You're going to have to work this out. And he doesn't even go very far. He just goes east of Eden to the land of Nod. And the land of Nod, Nod means wandering. So he's he's condemned to wander for the rest of his life, to be a nomad. And he still lives on to be fruitful. He finds a wife. He has a family. And it's very clear as they you know, share in the stories as they would in, as a nomadic society, sharing these stories of their origin. They share the story of Cain and they even talk about God sparing him. God says, you know, whoever harms you, I will avenge sevenfold. Well, Lemech, who is a later ancestor says, you know, if Cain was, was avenged sevenfold. I'll be avenged 77 fold. So like they double down on it. So this is like kind of their thing is, is vengeance and, and violence. So you see that then depicted in the comic is just being this, this constant aggressor, which I find really interesting. The thing that is then curious to me is why Abel would be personified as this perpetual victim. Cause that doesn't feel very fair because he's not done anything. Um, again, as far as the lore is concerned as a character, fascinating, you, you would need some sort of like, um, target for Kane to be fully Kane, um, as a character, but that's just giving some nerdy background as to that, that story and where we get those, those tropes from. Actually, I, yeah, because you brought up, you know, that calling it the first story. Like, what do you make of that? Well, that's what that's what's so fascinating to me. I, I've read a few things where it's suggested that Cain and Abel, as depicted in the dreaming, aren't the real Cain and Abel, that they are like the figments, the sort of fables elaborated on or extrapolated from the original source material. So then it makes me wonder if the the creation myth is not included because they're not treating it like a story. They're treating it as fact. And we see that kind of like in some of the other ways, biblical narrative is sprinkled throughout, you know, what's treated as like a real place or a a real, um, just like a known fact within the fabric of reality. Um, that's separate from the dreaming. You know, you've got these dreamscapes that, that exist. And so I'm wondering if either Cain and Abel, in the dreaming are just those figments, the sort of extrapolations from the, you know, faulty memories of these stories, or if they're suggesting that this, this myth is a story, but the creation myth with Adam and Eve is like fact. And wonder if that's how they're in the, again, as they're structuring this reality and Neil Gaiman's world of dreaming and the eternal, you know, the endless, et cetera if that's how he's kind of parsing it out is separating these two. Like, yes, this is real. This is a story though. I had always thought that maybe they're calling themselves, you know, the first story, you know, based off a chapter four in the Bible. So it is pretty early on. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wonder on how the story unfolds. 
compared to the prior three chapters where you have the creation, you have Adam and Eve, right? And then it's kind of like, so you have these, you have these players that are incarnate right from like, you know, God creating it. And then you have, you know, Cain coming in and Abel coming in and are created, you know, from like actual people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually able to have an actual story because they exist as like people, whereas Adam and Eve, by definition, can't be people because they didn't come from people. And I wonder if that's how mm-hmm. they kind of like call themselves the first story. Yeah. Well, and that would be interesting, too, because Genesis opens with this epic poetry. And then there are actually two creation stories. So there's the one that describes God's relationship with man or humankind. And then the one that re- that describes humankind's relationship with the world around them. Um, and they're written differently to, su- to suggest that there could possibly be more than one, one author between those two and like what's been, you know, collaborated on. There could also just be, okay, how are we going to parse out two creation stories and yeah. what are we going to sort out as fact versus fiction or myth versus dreamscape in some, some case. Cause we know that Eve is, is, in the dreaming, correct? There's some sort of like weird relationship there. And I know Seth comes up eventually as well. Yes. They refer to her as the Raven, Raven woman, woman yes. in this issue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just fa- fascinating behavior. Fascinating. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Aw, oh, man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it. Pause it. Turn off the TV. Do, do you Shh, think she's gone? make a sound. Hmm. I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh, well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters! Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. Fascinating. Sean, let's push over to you. What do you have on your docket for the deep dive? For this issue, I want to talk a little bit about Neil Gaiman's approach to the series and the existence of this book in a marketplace where it has to sell copies, right? Mm-hmm. Typically, there's a pretty steep dip from the sale of an issue one, which lots of people might pick up and try out and like, you know, see what's going on to those subsequent issues, those twos, threes, fours, etc. And I kind of felt like he really understood that fact in creating this issue and just threw so much out there. Like it's a world building issue, obviously, but... I'm thinking there's also this thing of like, he's just dropping all these breadcrumbs to say, you know, look at all the cool ideas I have. Don't you want to know more about this? Keep reading this series. And that was also part of the original intention of this monthly series. You know, he had gone to Karen Berger with the idea of doing like graphic novels. What you think is like self-contained graphic novels 
like Black Orchid, and he wanted to do one with the 70s Simon and Kirby Sandman. Simon and Kirby also created Captain America, so that's a weird connection there. Um, very different, of course. <laughs> but Karen had said, well, that's great, but nobody knows who you are, so let's get you on a monthly book to build up a little hype here. <laughs> so Neil Gaiman took this approach of, you know, taking the story seriously, but this was also a chance for him to try out all sorts of crazy ideas and just anything he could possibly think of. Okay. And I think this issue was really starting to get, really putting that out there. I feel like this is an issue that's either going to make you kind of put down the book and say, not for me, or it's like, I need to know more about all this stuff. It reminded me, had that sort of quality of like, the old original Star Wars movies, you know, because it felt like a world with rules and history. Mm. And, you know, like there's a little like, like in Star Wars, you got a little throwaway line where like, you know, Obi-Wan's like, oh, yes, I served with your father in the Clone Wars. And you're like, what's the Clone Wars? <laughs> I'll keep watching this. And, it, you know, maybe it's not all as satisfying when you find it out over the course of, you know. <laughs> 40 years or whatever, so but... Um, Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> right? Too soon. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, to the mind of, uh, of a reader, this is stuff that just, like, just, you know, all the sparks are flying in your imagination, right? And there's so many moments like that, um, some of which we've talked about already, like, what are Cain and Abel doing in this house of mystery and secrets in the dreaming slash dream time slash dream world? Or he's trying out some different names for this realm, right? Mm -hmm. in, this, in this issue. This, this context is really helpful for me because I remember when I read this issue again in preparation for this episode, I was like, oh, this is like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> like there is so much to unpack here. But you saying that he's just trying to throw everything out to see what sticks makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, did you not like the Cain and Abel stuff? Uh, okay, then we're going to give you Dr. Destiny. Yeah. Uh, did you not like that? And then we're going to give you uh, Lucian in the collapse of the castle. Uh, did you not like that? We're going to give you a baby gargoyle. Did you not like that? We're going to give you the three witches. Like, it's like, no, there's something for everybody. Yeah, I mean, he's a storyteller and a, and a serious writer, but Neil Gaiman's also a showman. Mm -hmm. He truly is. And, and then you have these little lines that are just like, Abel says to, to Dream when he, when he awakes from being carried by the adorable gargoyle Gregory into the He's so, into house. so cute. He says, I know, he really is. Uh, he says he found you in the shifting zones. And you're like, what are the shifting zones? I don't even think we ever find out what the shifting zones are. Or, you know, Dream on his journey to the gates of Horn and Ivory, questions there are too, he says if he weren't so exhausted, he would not have even needed to travel, right? Which is such a mm -hmm. such an interesting thing to say. You know, we saw him open up one of those portals in the last issue, but but just saying, like, oh, I wouldn't even needed to travel. I could have just been there. It's just so cool. Yeah, I remember reading that and going, like, okay, weird flex, but fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you think about the, the letters of commission that Cain and Abel mm -hmm. have received from that were created before the dawn of time. And you're like, what is that story where Cain and Abel got here and then they get these, these you know, these uh, symbols of office and things like that. Which I found curious that Cain seemed like he didn't want to give his up. Like Abel brings up, he's like, oh, I've got mine. Like here, this is something you can have. 
But Kane's just like, what do you I shut mean, up? Does that reflect back on <laughs> exactly the what your story? Yeah, exactly what your what your <laughs> point was on the original story, right? Right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, like he mentions, he's like, things have gotten weird here. So initially I was like, oh, okay. Like the one person that Kane will answer to is Dream. Cool. <laughs> but then when he's like, I don't want to give up something you've given me. It's just interesting to me, this like sort of tug and like push and pull Absolutely. with any sort of authority figure. Yeah, yeah. And then um, there's that great page where he's approaching the gates. And, and as you know, you heard in our little opening quotation, you know, dream talking about outside the dream world, there's infinite dusk, infinite dark, the way to the center is a slow spiral. One charts a course nightward until one reaches the gates of horn and ivory. I carved them myself when the world was younger and order was needed, right? Um, just so 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 enticing. Lucian's library, the raven woman living in nightmares, the fashion thing, which is such a short <laughs> cameo. Um, or, or the Hecate, you know, when Dream asks them, so Dream, at Lucian's suggestion grabs these items from from different dreamers that he uses in the ceremony to call the three witches uh, to learn about the locations of his tools. And he asks them for help, and they kind of scoff at him and say, did you help us against Cersei? And you're like, huh? What? Okay, yeah. There's these three yeah. magical witches in a war against, against, against Cersei? Okay. You know, this is a bit different, but I also wanted to just call out connecting to what I mentioned in the last issue about Neil Gaiman sort of taking these conventions and be willing to overturn them and explore new territory through, you know, still working within the same basic structure, but, but showing us new parts of it and showing us, you know, the underside of it and things like that. At one point, um, Dream is, I believe he's, he's talking to Lucian and he says, he's, you know, lamenting the loss of his tools. And he says, I placed too much of myself in the tools and they're gone. And I really think that that was a sort of meta comment on his, his approach to comics. I think, I think this was a call hmm. to action readers and other creators to say like, comics can be something more. You've relied on these conventions and these superhero stories and things like that for so long and they're great and they they, they help you do it. But the consequence of that is that these tools can become a, a, a trap and they can limit what you're capable of. And so I think that was a, that was, that was a, a significant moment. And, you know, this sort of meta commentary, I believe, continues sort of throughout the series. And I do think his continual deconstruction, the meta-analysis, that is that is part of the the overall arc that he is he is trying to do here. It is not just a comic book. It's a comic book with a lot more going on that you can read at a variety of different levels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think with that, we're gonna jump into the panel. So I think we'll throw it right over to Ashley and see what was your favorite panel in this week's issue. Yeah, again, so like drinking from a fire hose, so many options. I really had to fight with this one. But the the panel that I just found myself keep paging back to absentmindedly is the one, again, you'll have to forgive my lack of page numbers. My my issue doesn't have any, but it's right when Dream is witnessing the destruction of his castle. You know, he's speaking to Lucian. And you've got that one beautiful panel where Dream is staring at it and you see his full face with his 
big wide eyes staring at what what his, what has become of his kingdom. This would be page 13 if you wanted to take a look at it. Thank you. And the reason that I think I keep paging back to this panel is it's really the first time we're seeing him express an emotion apart from grim determination. Like prior to this, it's all been very sharp angular lines in his face and this sort of like Clint Eastwood squint about him every time he's trying to do something. And now we've got a face that is much more rounded, much more innocent. Even his eyes are larger. You know, the people themselves are always going to be those like very bright, intense stars, but the actual size of his eyes and the roundness, the shape are so much larger. And I think this really helps establish his relationship and trust in Lucian as well, because he's being vulnerable here. You know, physically he was vulnerable when he was imprisoned. He was physically vulnerable when he passed out in the house of mysteries. Uh, but here is being emotionally vulnerable in front of Lucian who has been with him since the beginning. And I think that's a huge character moment for him. You get this development that you just haven't gotten yet. You know, before he was very much Lord trying to come back home. And now you've got this Lord who has fallen and is having to acknowledge the fact uh, that he's lost all of this. And so I think it's just, it's, it's a really moving panel. You even have like his own hair pushes outside the sides of the panel. So he, his, his grief yeah. is larger than what can contain him. Um, and it's just, why do I always pick the sad stuff? I'm realizing I have a pattern here. <laughs> I had picked it as well. Oh, did you really? So I, I, that, that's what I knew what page it was on. So I was like, I'm staring at the page. Oh, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's why we don't let each other know what we're going to pick because it's kind of more fun. So, Sean, taking a look at that panel, anything you pull out of that different? I think all of that is a, is a great point. You know, we're going to go back in this series and we're going to see the cold and haughty dream that existed previous to his imprisonment. But this is this is a this is a changed being after that. But not it's not like night and day because we're going to see, you know, exactly how much he struggles with that and the sort of long-term consequences of it'll be, it'll be a while before we see moments of vulnerability again. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so as he, as he regains his, his, his power and his station, you know, he's kind of drifts back into that cold and, and distant figure, but there's, there's something about this experience that has fundamentally changed him that we'll be exploring mm-hmm. for the rest of the series. So <laughs> to be honest, I was kind of drawn to that same area but i i almost want to cheat here and, and go with the entire previous page um i just the, the previous page where dream is approaching his kingdom approaching the gates of horn and ivy i just think that page layout is so remarkable those kind of series of kind of concentric bands that get larger as you move down the page it's such amazing perspective watching dream walk towards us, towards the viewer from the distance to approach those mysterious gates of Horn and Ivy. This would be page 11, if you want to take a look. Then, you know, the sort of perspective shift. So we see him from the back. We see him approaching this this mysterious barrier. And then that moment of tension as he goes to open the gates and walk through. I just think it's, you know, significantly different than a typical page layout. And it just works so well at communicating the anticipation, the tension, the ardor of the of the journey he's taken and the 
commentary dreams narration throughout that page it's just like so wonderful like i was talking about earlier it's just you know so mysterious and and brings you in so much and also calling out todd klein's lettering here the lettering and the unique shape and color of dreams thought bubbles are are so distinct and so different than anything else that was being done in comics at that time. Um, just a really, a, a really remarkable and, and wonderful uh, page in my mind. So a little bit of a cheat there, but um, so we're not all talking about the exact same pages. <laughs> I thought I'd go with that one. <laughs> I think mine is going to be on page 18 at the bottom. And this is when the Hecate have been summoned by Morpheus. Mm. So you get this great, portrait glamour shot almost <laughs> with all three of them the we who are they and you see these three distinct faces and the thing that i really like about it is again we're back into this like myth occult type setting like we were in book one and the framing around this panel is back so if you go back through the rest of this issue you won't see framing like we did in the first issue where there was specific framing when we were at the um, Burgess's house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. All this occult demon, you know, all this old world, the way that I think about it, like this, this different plane of existence has these borders around it. Well, here we get reintroduced to having this like framing device. Right. And it, it means something like they had to make a choice to be like, we're going to put a frame around this panel and it's it's skull and bones and some, you know, demonic ornaments towards the bottom. And I just really like that they're using that. They're using the fact that this is a visual medium to tell you that something is different here. This isn't all as it seems. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point. And you know, I was talking about sort of rhyming images that create echoes earlier, and this is a perfect example mm. of that. It's like, you know, this is the shape of oh. this is this is the 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 physical shape of sorcery or right. magic, right? Yeah. Cuz if you just flip over to page 19, you can see that Dream is in conversation with the kindly ones and his panels have no border. Their panel has a border. Mm-hmm. They're trying to tell you something here. And you might not catch it the first or second time you read it, but eventually you'll start to be like, "Oh, there is importance in what they're showing me outside of just the the words." And and I do think sometimes people who are first getting into comics, they might be overwhelmed and they're just like, all right, I just want to, I'm just going to read the letters on the page. And it's like, well, that's not why you were reading a comic book. Like you're reading it because it is both a, there's letters and there are drawings and those work together to tell an overall story. Yeah. I also love the, the Trinitarian imagery here that there is no hierarchy between them. They are just all the same. Yeah. Entity and that they accomplish that by right. switching position oh, yes. in each panel uh, to be able to establish that they're all talking kind of as one, but also separate. Yeah. On the next page, and the one Ben was talking about that, how they're switching positions, and you know the the crone <laughs> grabs this little some little <laughs> creature, and the the mother's <laughs> eating it in the middle, in, in you know in the middle panel, and then the maiden is like chewing it up and, and burping on the on the bottom panel. It's so great. <laughs> it's not something yeah. that you could express the same way in any other medium. Like you couldn't, like that would look weird no. in film. It would be um, 
It would take it would, a page of writing. Yes, it would take it would a whole a page <laughs> to convey, you know, oh, the blonde one is now eating what the what the mother figure was originally eating. You're like, mm-hmm. what? Like, excuse me? Yeah. This is really flexing the muscle of, of comics as a particular medium that he's working in. Yeah. 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 I, whenever I read something, I like to try to imagine what it would be like to be on stage. And I just, all I could picture, the closest I could get would be three actresses on a lazy Susan and you're just spinning them <laughs> the entire time. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! (laughs) Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Well, let's get to our last section, which is our favorite non-Morpheus character. And this is going to be a big one to decide who it starts with, because we all might be choosing the same one. We're going to go with Sean. Okay. In the interest of everyone potentially choosing the one, I got the same one. I need to switch it up last second. I'm switching it up. Oh. Calling an audible. And we don't share these ahead of time. No. So he's just going with an audible. Yes. As I read through this time. Now, in previous readings, I might have, you know, gone with someone else. In this reading, I'm going with the fashion thing. (laughs) I just friggin' love this I love this being because because of course storytellers and, and dramatists and novelists and things like that would draw their inspiration from this realm of dream, but so would fashion, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, Lucian is describing the what the different residents of the dreaming have been doing in in Morpheus's absence. And he says, the fashion thing has been many things. Flapper, mod, punk. She was a mad Madonna witch for a while. Last time I saw her, she was the mad yuppie witch, but that was a year ago. And we see this sort of yuppie dressed figure with like short, perky blonde hair riding a broomstick with an eye patch and saying, Blood and Perrier, goddammit. <laughs> Which <I> just <laughs> makes it's just so great. It's such a great little image. And, um, and at the back of the broom, like on the actual where the <laughs> room part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What do you describe the, the bottom of a broom? Actual, like the the, the brush. The brush. I don't, yes. I don't know. The brush around the brush. It has a bumper sticker that says, "My other broom is a Porsche." <laughs> Someone had to letter that. Someone had to decide. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to draw that, and we're going to letter that. And I mean, I'm I'm on an iPad, so I could zoom in because normally I couldn't really read. It. I mean, can you read it on your? I can make it out now that you say, but I've never noticed that. Before. Yeah. It's like it's great. Yep. I feel like everyone has this ant. Like, this is someone's <laughs> ant somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Ashley, what you got? Man, okay, I, I too 
I'm worried that we'd all be picking the same thing. So I gave myself a backup, but I actually, as we've been going through it, my, my backup has, has become my actual first pick. Um, and that's Lucian. I just love how he's styled. You wouldn't think that someone with like two tufts of hair on, on either side of his head and then one spiky point at the top of his head, would it all be someone that you're like, that's a heroic figure right there. But he, like the way he comports himself with dream and the way that he's like clearly been sort of stewarding the, the, you know, sort of crumbling kingdom in dreams absence, um, I think is a testament to his loyalty, especially when they don't know when he's coming back or if he's coming back. Um, and just how he's been keeping tabs on everything, just going through. I mean, I always love a good librarian, but the fact that he's really being consistent and dutiful to his tasks and knows everything on everybody and is able to make a full report. Like he's prepared. He is the epitome of preparedness. He didn't know. Yeah. At any yeah. time. Dream could have walked in there at any time and Lucy would have been ready to go. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I just, again, like the, the panel with his close-up face as he's yes. giving details to this grieving dream, it's just so gritty. Like you could see the stubble on his face. It's the most detail yes. of any face in this entire issue. Yeah. And the, just the line work alone is gorgeous. Just that, that close-up sort of like I've seen things expression on his face is really compelling. So I just, I, I love the fact that we have a character established now that isn't equal to dream as far as like prowess is concerned, but clearly somebody that is respected and should be respected. And you see continue to assert some modicum of authority in this, this world is really interesting. All right, I'll do it. I'm going with, I'm going with Irving. Obviously <laughs> that's the, the, the obvious choice. <laughs> The obvious choice, <laughs> Irving the Gargoyle. <laughs> that, that's it. I have nothing to say because it's just it's he's just so great. What what page Ben is the the, the his first appearance or the just the little his little innocent face? Uh, page fifteen. Yes, bottom right corner of page fifteen. Um, you have Abel saying, "Hmm, hmm, I, mm, I think I'll call him Irving." And then you just see Irving from Kane. <laughs> and the reason for that is that gargoyles always begin with a G. And Irving's first thing he sees is Abel getting murdered off screen. And so uh, that is why I'm going with Irving. If Netflix plays their cards right, they could probably have their next baby Yoda uh, right here. Oh, have you oh, not seen the screen time. gaps of Irving? No, I don't think I have. Oh, he's adorable. <laughs> when it's funny, too, because these gargoyles are supposed to be these like gatekeepers of a kind. But even Gregory, like when he's bringing Dream in, he's got his like pinkies out fancy oh, style, absolutely. like as he's depositing him. Classy. So all these gargoyles, yeah, are both classy and adorable. Not very good guard dogs. One of those one of the things that Sam Keith is really great at is just monster design i mean mm. it's i i <laughs> believe that's why you know when we get to issue four that's basically why that issue exists because sam keith just draws such cool monsters um they are able to communicate such a diverse array of of you know a sense of themselves uh in his designs it's it's just wonderful mm -hmm. all right before we wrap any honorable mentions that anybody wanted to throw out 
here before we get out of here. I just have a quick question that I just noticed as I was flipping back and forth between panels of um, Irving. When he's first hatched, we do see him with wings. On the last page of this issue, I don't see wings on him. Is that, do we have <laughs> speculations on that? Any sort of thing I might be missing? Ooh. Yeah, so if you look at that last page, you're right. You see him from the back and there aren't wings. But there are definitely wings on him when he's sitting there in his hand. I don't know, something we'll have to keep an eye on. Ooh, yeah, interesting. I mean, there I know there were a lot of like little publication errors. And in fact, there's one page. So it could just be like a publication error or it could have just been a, mm. you know, sort of... Pen- I tend to think it was a publication error because I feel like between was there a the Starbucks penciler... cup left in a uh, panel? <laughs> yeah, right. There, but there's one page in the in the German translation in a later issue. The German translation, I saw this in, in Highbender Sam and Companion. The person doing the German lettering in an empty panel, just like out of boredom or something, sketched a little crude drawing of Dream. And then the publisher, thinking that was intended to be in there, actually published that. So in the intended version, it's an empty blank white panel. If you get the German version, there's this like little stick figure drawing of dream. Oh my God, that's so funny. That's amazing. I love that. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman. Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller. Only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman. Unlocked. An odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Head Trip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.